Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Jack English and this is City Hall Stories. These are conversations with local government leaders who are imagining, designing and creating our future societies. Aspirational governance is the most effective way to build a healthier future. And this podcast is built to be a source of inspiration for anyone who looks out their window and says, let's do better. I hope the incredible humans you'll hear from deliver that inspiration. Wellington, New Zealand is usually in the running for the globe's most livable city. Sitting on a natural harbour, it enjoys easy access to beautiful coastline and mountain ranges. However, the ground underneath it is moving. The sea is rising against its walls and transforming demographics are straining infrastructure and housing. Today, we talk with the individual responsible for planning how Wellington must respond to these challenges. Mike Mendonca is the Chief Resilience Officer of Wellington City Council, having previously spent time in the military and central government. The next half hour covers the rapid institution of earthquake preparedness, the influence of indigenous Māori culture and strategic planning, plus how to sell stakeholders on long-term benefits despite short-term costs. Please enjoy my conversation with Mike Mendonca. Mike, it's a pleasure to speak today. Really looking forward to this one. For our listeners, we actually just found out that we went to rival high schools, so fingers crossed this one goes well. Before talking about your current role at Wellington City Council, wanted to touch on your previous experience. You spent time in the military, but also in central government. And when we chatted previously, you mentioned the differences in operating between the two were brutal. Can you elaborate? Well, Jack, when it comes to central government, I, I think you're a little bit removed from the actual consequences of the decisions that you take, certainly when you compare that to local government, at at local government level, everything you do is directly in the face of the people who you are affecting, and they tend to give you immediate feedback, solicited or otherwise. And so that makes it, I think, certainly more frustrating than central government, but also more rewarding at the same time. So almost like it's different kinds of skills that are required for the two different sorts of government. That's not to say that they need to be mutually exclusive. Of course not. But um, quite different skill sets and quite different mindsets required for the two different kinds of government in New Zealand, in my view. Is one governance structure better than the other in achieving, I guess, the outcomes that we're looking to achieve? I don't think it's a matter of what's better. They're just different. And it's democracy, so it's imperfect. And we always find imperfections. But I think overall, we generally agree it's better than the alternative. That's not to say that local government doesn't need some fresh eyes cast over it. And that's why the minister, I guess, has recently launched a review of local government in New Zealand. Because the way we're currently set up probably isn't going to serve us well in the future. So maybe it is time for some fresh eyes and thinking about a change. So for some of our global listeners, can you chat about what that review might look like? What are some of the items and issues under the purview of the review? Yeah, so really interesting in in New Zealand, a lot of this is about infrastructure. So at the moment, we have some big challenges with three waters infrastructure across New Zealand, and and particularly in Wellington. And there's a question as to whether the three waters and the way we've currently set up local government is a good match. Increasingly, people seem to be of the view that perhaps it isn't. And so the government's looking at maybe setting up a different way of delivering water services and having larger, more corporatised three waters delivery services instead of the 68 different councils that we have across New Zealand. It's interesting that, that infrastructure and local government seem to be kind of kind of on divergent paths. And that's causing us to rethink um, why we have local government and perhaps the future of local government is, is different, perhaps not so involved in infrastructure anymore. 
Uh, who, who knows? But that, that's the purpose of, of that, that, that's exactly why the minister has, has launched a review. Um, we do have a lot of local governments in New Zealand. Our councils often were set up around port or around communities. Over generations, the way that we've grown and integrated communities leads us to think that maybe the reasons that we set up councils in the first place are not the reasons that we should have them anymore. And, and it's time for, a, time for a look. It happens from time to time, you know. We did this 30 years ago in New Zealand. We had a look and, and uh, did a whole bunch of amalgamations and changes to the way that we do local governments and councils. And it's time for another look at that again. That was 30 years ago. And we need to think about growth, about climate change, about resilience, about a changing population, changing demographic, you know. And we need to think about that, make sure that our governance structures are good for the future. You lead the resiliency program at Wellington City Council. Before getting into the specifics of your role, can you define what resiliency represents from a government perspective? I think resilience is a state of mind and it's whatever you need it to be. And I think um, every country has different resilience drivers and every city has different resilience drivers. And one of the benefits of being involved with Rockefeller's 100 Resilience Cities program was that it forced us to think about what is resilience for Wellington? What are our challenges and how are we going to deal with those challenges? So every city in that program was required to go through a process that forced us to confront what those things are, forced us to articulate them and to support our thinking with some assessment and some analysis. It's a little bit like human beings, Jack. So, so every person has different uh, resilience needs and different resilience drivers. And as it is with cities, every city is different. But what 100 resilient cities uh, forced us to do was to think about our, our challenges for the city and to articulate those by way of a, a formal strategy that we adopted. So for Wellington, for example, we have three challenges. Our, our three challenges are, first of all, that the, the earth is moving. This is all about movement. So we know 100% for sure that we're going to have a big earthquake here one day. don't know exactly when, but we know we're going to. We know that the sea is rising. We're, we're a coastal city. We're, we're a port like many cities. And with the sea rising... We know that's a major challenge for us and we need to think about how we're going to deal with that challenge. And the final one was for us was that our society is transforming. Increasingly, uh, people want to come and live in Wellington, New Zealand. The population is getting older. It's getting more diverse. The distribution of wealth is, is, is growing. So um, how are we going to deal with that as, as a city, as our society transforms? So, so that those are our three big uh, challenges and really we've crafted our, crafted our strategy strategy around those three challenges. Now every city is different, so, so it's not a template you can come and plop onto another city because you have to go through that thinking and that analysis to come up with what the challenges are so that you can seek to resolve them. Because um, unless you understand the problem, it's very hard to actually solve it. So, so for us, for Wellington, it's all about movement, the earth moving, the sea moving, and our society transforming as well. So again, for, for global listeners who may not really be aware of the strong uh, Māori cultural influence on our local governments, are there any unique aspects of the strategy document that you put together that were informed or educated from the Māori perspective or the Māori worldview? In New Zealand, I guess we're more fortunate than, than many other countries in that uh, over 150 years ago now that the two um, people of New Zealand came together and formed a treaty, and, and that underpins everything that we do as, as a nation now. Now, that's not to say that's been easy, that's been very difficult at times, and continues to be so, but at least we acknowledge that through the Treaty of Waitangi, which is the name of that document. But that treaty now underpins everything that we do, including our resilience strategy. 
we spend a lot of time and effort with the, the local um, Māori, the indigenous population, um, talking about what our resilience challenges are and how we might work alongside Māori to make sure that we that we um, have an integrated approach to resilience. The other thing is the indigenous people of, of Wellington, the Māori people, have been here for a long, long time. And in terms of resilience, there's an awful lot we can learn from Māori. For example, we spend a lot of time paying very highly educated geotechnical engineers to tell us where are good places to build and good places not to build high-rise buildings in Wellington. But if we look at the, the early pencil-drawn sketches that Māori had, they would never have built on uh, old stream beds or where there is lots of uh, gravel and alluvium build-up because they knew that those areas were pr- prone to flooding. You don't need a geotech engineer to tell you that. It's just good common sense and it is local knowledge. There's a reason that local Māori built their um, settlements, their pā, on, on land that is that is good land, that's not prone to flooding and not prone to earthquake. There's a lot we can learn from uh, Indigenous culture, and you know, we really try to embrace that into, and to weave that into our resilience strategy wherever possible. Love that. Thanks, Mike. Wellington City Council has been mired in, I guess you'd call it, political instability for quite some time now. In what ways does this make your job more challenging as it might not if you were, say, in the private sector? I'd push back a little bit there, Jack. Yes, there's been some high-profile issues with the governance on the council, but it hasn't been unstable. Just uh, just last week, we, we passed our 10-year budget. Now, that, that attracted a lot of uh, media attention, and there's a lot of good heated debate about that, but that's kind of what you want from your elected members. You want them to be debating and, and disagreeing and, and, and arguing over whether we're going to invest in sea level rise or resilience or a new convention centre or housing. It's exactly what we want. So so um, while it might have been a wee bit unseemly at times, um, the fact is that a 10-year budget w- was agreed. You know, uh, it's, it's a fair point that with an electoral cycle, that means we have a change in leadership every three years. It's really important that things like a resilience strategy that has a 30, or in some cases, a 100-year time frame. It's really important that that can endure beyond a three-year electoral cycle. So part of my job as a Chief Resilience Officer is to make sure that our resilience strategy does exactly that. And, and the way that we've been able to do that is, is by embedding it into city documents, such as our, our long-term plan, and as such as the, um, the city's district plan, which is the blueprint for how we're going to grow into the future. So if we can imbue those sorts of documents with resilience thinking, and resilience principles, then they will endure beyond the three-year uh, electoral t- time frame. And I have to say, r- really, um, sea level rise and certainly earthquakes are pretty much political mainstream now. People understand what happens in an earthquake. Gee, we've had two pretty significant earthquakes here in New Zealand in the last 10 years, and, and most of our elected members live through those, so they get it. And with sea level rise, as I look out the window now, climate change, it's pouring down outside and in the South Island of New Zealand at this very moment we have significant flooding. So so in terms of sea level rise, climate change and, and that particular aspect of our resilience, you just need to look out the window to see the political relevance of that today as we're speaking, Jack. So I'm confident that the work we've done in resilience, supported by um, Rockefeller's 100 Resilient Cities, has ensured that our resilience strategy and the projects that we have on our books will endure beyond the three-year electoral cycle. In many of the areas related to resilience, let's say infrastructure, transportation, wastewater, water, have their own council, I guess you'd call them directorates. Do your resiliency goals that stretch, as you mentioned, over 30, 50, 100 years ever clash with the more 
I guess, immediate objectives of those directorates themselves? Yes, they, they clash all the time. Uh, there are often conflicts between resilience and, and other outcomes, notably affordability and cost. So um, resilience tends to cost a little bit more than other solutions. So part of my challenge as the chief resilience officer is, is, to, is to work the system, work relationships, to talk up the co-benefits of resilience investment and to make sure people can see those. And, and I like to think that here in Wellington, we've been largely been successful with that. I have to say, that's not solely due to my spark and wit and competence as the Chief Resilience Officer, but it, it kind of helped that we had a pretty grunty earthquake um, a couple of months before we actually launched our resilience strategy, which was a good reminder for people as to why we needed to think about this. But yes, uh, we often come into conflict with other other parts of the council, and my job, a big chunk of my job, is to make sure I'm working through those conflicts and, and selling the co-benefits of resilience. And I, I, I like to think we've done a pretty good job in doing that, Jack. There's two cities in New Zealand part of the 100 Resilient Cities Network, yourself, Wellington, and also Christchurch. How much of your work goes on in collaboration with Christchurch versus what issues are specific to Wellington and require a Wellington-specific strategy? Very interesting. So Christchurch, of course, had a tragic and huge earthquake it's 10 and a half years ago now. Wellington had a um, significant but not tragic earthquake five years ago now. Um, you, you would think there would be strong similarities about the way that the cities talk to each other about earthquake, but they're actually quite different. And well, of course, there are some crossovers, and my colleague in Christchurch, Mike Gulluli, and I work very closely together on, on all sorts of aspects of resilience. It's really important that the cities and the communities themselves buy into and have the mindset of resilience. As I said before, you can't just take a template and plop it onto another city because at the end of the day, what we can talk about planning and about infrastructure and buildings, at the end of the day, resilience is a bit, isn't about infrastructure, it's about people and it's about communities. And every city has its own personality, its own community, and the communities need to own resilience. It's a state of mind. While we talk, and um, Mayor Leanne Delzell in, in Christchurch has been a strong supporter of, of resilience, as has my Mayor Andy Foster, that doesn't mean that you don't have to do the hard work in your own community, um, getting people to understand the drivers and getting buy-in from the locals. It's got to be local. You can't, it can't be top-down. So um, whilst there are strong similarities and some really strong um, linkages, you can't get past it needing to be a grassroots and coming from the bottom up. Any council area that touches development, you know, like transportation, is going to come across groups of residents that are savvy and adept at making their voice heard, even if it might not be representative or in the best interests of council at large. Are there any stories in Wellington that come to mind demonstrating this? In a democracy, that's that's always going to happen, and, and we have to embrace that. People have different points of views. Just as people, some people today think that um, vaccinations are not a good thing, you, you can't ignore those views. You have to you have to embrace them and bring them into the decision making. We have some real examples at the moment around, for example, buildings. So in an earthquake, and we know we're going to have an earthquake in Wellington, um, it's not the earthquake that kills people; it is the buildings. So we we have a regulation here in, in New Zealand that requires people who own certain buildings that are vulnerable in an earthquake to get into a certain structural strength within a certain time period. Now, some building owners don't believe that that is a rational thing to do and, and push back against us all the time and in a couple of cases just refuse to do what they are required to do by law. So we have a couple of court cases here in Wellington where the council is actually taking those 
owners to court in an effort to try and find a way through this using legal channels. Another, another example, there are parts of the city that we know are prone to things like liquefaction, liquefaction and flooding. Uh, we'd very much like us not to intensify or develop those parts of the city, but that needs to be part of a huge public debate. And not everybody is going to agree with us. Uh, a lot of people are going to say, no, we, we don't think that you're being rational. We think you're being risk averse and we think that we should develop this part of the city. There are a lot of examples where um, some rational resilience thinking isn't necessarily matched by other thinking, and resilience isn't the only thing we need to think about. Really, you know, Jack, it's about um, what's an acceptable level of risk, and I think it's really important that that's a public debate, and that together as communities we decide what is an acceptable level of risk. It's much better to do it with the community than doing it to the community. Far less confrontational and ultimately far more fruitful if we can do these things as a community, Jack. Why did it take, do you think, something like the Rockefeller Foundation to come together and essentially fund this network, this program globally? Why does every city by default not have resiliency built in at the ground level of their governance structures? Well, I think every city is different. In some cities... Some cities already had it in place and wanted it to be even better. So, so the Dutch cities, you know, Rotterdam has been living with water and flooding for 50, 60 years or more, actually, for hundreds of years, really. But after a big flood in, in the 1950s, that, that they had to rethink um, how they lived with the water. So uh, they were in quite an advanced state of resilience. And others were well behind the, the eight ball. So, so there were, um, all cities are different. I think that um, for New Zealand cities, I think that New Zealand culturally we're really good at getting ourselves out of trouble when bad stuff happens. And I like to talk about uh, the example of Gallipoli, where you know, in the crucible of battle, New Zealand and Australia's soldiers during World War One managed to get out of a really tricky spot with some great acts of valor and heroism. And you know, that, those are now built into our, our military history, our cultural history, and, and our folklore is, is, is a great start to the independence of, of New Zealand and Australia, the Anzacs. But actually, do you know, um, the Anzac legend was born from a ginormous mistake where we actually landed all those ships in the wrong place. We should never have been there in the first place. So our thinking here in, in Wellington, at least, is wouldn't it be better instead of responding to disasters and getting out of trouble is to avoid trouble in the first place? The other example I like to use is is the Thai boys football team who, who got stuck in the cave for a couple of weeks and everybody Love the story about how they were rescued and, and how the divers bravely brought those boys out of, of that cave. But actually, um, the truth is, and you wouldn't get any medals for this, but it would have been much better not to have gone into the cave in the first place. So that's kind of how we see ourselves as a resilient staff here in Wellington. It's much better for us not to go into the caves in the first place. But if we do want to go into the caves, <laughs> good to have a plan to get us out of it, but, but, but best not to get in trouble in the first place. Are there any caves on the horizon that you see Wellington or... I guess, the global community at large heading into? Certainly for Wellington, our, our cave that we kind of stick our noses into from time to time is earthquakes. The thing with earthquakes is, as other cities around the world have found, that um, it's a very short time frame before people forget about what's happened. So that's what's really important, that laws, policies, plans don't forget, and they continue to kind of build on, on the previous experience so that the corporate memory doesn't kind of uh, doesn't forget so for us as earthquake that is our main cave i think worldwide generally speaking sea level rise and climate change is a collective cave for us we're all kind of struggling with this some cities like miami Dayton in, in florida is kind of 
ahead of us in terms of thinking about this because they have to be. Cities like Wellington and Christchurch starting to have these issues now. We need to start kind of um, collectively understanding how we're going to avoid going to the cave. And, and it's all very, very well to speak metaphorically, but as we adapt to sea level rise, there's some really tricky questions we have to navigate, like who's going to pay for this stuff? Is it going to be just the people that are impacted? Is it going to be all of us? And if so, how's that going to work? And, and, and if it is going to be something like that, then, then who gets to make those decision, decisions, you know, as a country where struggling with that now in, in New Zealand. And I know we're not the only ones around the world. These, this is a critical collective cave for us to figure out how we stay out of it. When the time horizons of these issues, whether it's a potential earthquake or climate change, stretch out so far into the future, how do you prioritise on a day-to-day operational basis what needs to be done or addressed at that specific moment? You can't avoid the day-to-day stuff. We've got flooding in New Zealand now. Um, we have to respond to that and we have to figure out how we're going to fix it in the short term. So with stuff like sea level rise, um, yes, we have really good science and engineering that underpins what the city's going to look like in 30, 50, and we think 100 years' time, but based on the good science that we have. You know, there are bits of the city that will be underwater in 50 years' time, but that doesn't mean that we have to knee-jerk and abandon those bits of the city now, but it means we need to think about it, and we have to have um, adaptive pathways. We, we have to make decisions today that are rational, but don't preclude us making harder decisions in the future. And, you know, honestly, Jack, I'm pushing 60 now, so it's probably going to be my kids or grandkids that have to make those decisions. And I have a responsibility to them to make sure I don't do anything dumb today that stops them making sensible decisions when the time comes in 50 years' time. So we've got some coastal communities here that are under threat. But, you know, the people that live and enjoy those parts of the coast can enjoy those for another 25, 50 years. And and my job today is to make sure that we take steps so that that can happen. But without precluding my kids making, or you, Jack, you're a bit younger than me, making sensible decisions in 25 years' time, that might be a bit harder than the decisions I need to make today. I don't think making decisions today needs to be mutually exclusive from making harder decisions in the future, but certainly I don't want to be making decisions that make it harder for you. You touched on what Wellington's doing from an earthquake strengthening perspective to prepare for the future. Can you talk about some of those specifics that are occurring when it comes to sea level rises? What is the city doing in terms of, from a a complete outsider that has no idea, can you talk us through some of those critical issues, those critical pieces of infrastructure or those projects that are going on that are going to make it more sustainable, more resilient for the next 50 years? We've got a couple of coastal communities that we know are under threat. Very tricky because most of the threat is actually owned by private property owners. And in Wellington, our roading network goes right around the edge of the city, the coast, goes right around the coast. So our roads and the seawalls that protect those roads also protect private property that sits in behind them. We can't just look at protecting the road and the cost of protecting the road. We need to look at what lies behind it and what the value of that, the property that lies behind the road. So we, we have this issue Right now, we are, our roads are getting washed out, and in some cases, our rail network's getting washed out. If we just look at the cost to replace that road without looking at the property that's, stuck, that's tucked in behind it, we're not really doing our communities a good service. We need to think about the public and private benefit from the investments that we have. And what that means is that we need to shift how we think about public assets, and we need to start thinking about the role they serve in terms of protecting private communities. Right now, we have two or three places where we are Upgrading seawalls, what we're trying to do is to make sure that they're going to last us between 20 and 50 years. 
Um, and then in 50 years' time, maybe those seawalls can be extended, that, that we, we design those so they can be um, built upwards. But then again, you know, in, in the future, communities might not want to live behind seawalls. So, so they will have that, that option and that opportunity. That's the kind of thing we're thinking about. We have a coastal community, Makara Beach, uh, on the west coast of Wellington, that got uh, badly damaged during a cyclone that was exacerbated by sea level rise in 2018. So just last week, the councillors have agreed to, to a series of interventions that would help to adapt that, that coastal community to sea level rise, but accepting that there's some really complex issues to work through with those with, with that adaptation as to who pays for it and who gets to decide. In the meantime, let's crack on and, and build a fund to protect the community, but in, in the longer term, um, it needs some more deep thinking, and who knows, maybe the future of that community is not sustainable in 50 years' time, but let's worry about that in 30, 40 years' time. In the meantime, let's continue to enjoy it by putting in some short-term hard defences to defend it against sea level rise. Some huge percentage of New Zealanders, I think it might be around 85%, live within a short drive of the coastline. And as we look out, let's say, a 100 years, do you hypothesise that our cities, our population centres, are going to slowly creep further inland? Or are we just going to build up better and better and stronger, more resilient defences in the existing population centres as they sit today? Well, that's the um, question that all cities around the world are dealing with. So famously, New York is looking at uh, a big J-shaped swathe of hard and soft defences to protect Manhattan Island. But, you know, in 100 years, what will that look like? Holland has the same challenges whilst they've been living with water for all that time. At some point, you know, the water's going to win the battle. It's not for me to talk about cities other than Wellington, but certainly for Wellington, that's a discussion we're having now. Personally, I think the smart thing for us to do is to start to move back up the hill. But there isn't a lot of um, usable space in Wellington, so what that means is is probably building up rather than building out, compact city. Uh, that's full of opportunity as well as risk, but, but um, that's just my personal view. You know, that needs to be a collective decision taken by the people of Wellington in the coming generations, Jack. Are there any exciting developments you're seeing in the private sector that will make it easier to build resilient cities moving forward? Yes, um, a couple of things that are perceived as negative, but I think will ultimately be positive. So so negatively, traditionally in New Zealand and Australia, we have tended to transfer risk onto insurance companies. We've figured that if something bad happens, we don't need to worry too much because the insurers will cover it. And certainly with our earthquakes in the last 10, 11 years, that's what's happened. But increasingly, insurers here in New Zealand are getting a bit um, anxious about that. It's starting to increase premiums, and in a couple of cases, it's been very difficult to get insurance. So uh, that's not un- uncommon for other parts of the world, in Japan and California in particular. Um, it's not unusual not to have uh, um, insurance for seismic events. So we're starting to imagine what it might be like in, in New Zealand if we didn't have insurance to cover seismic events and perhaps... Uh, some sea level rise issues, and the insurance council has already been quite clear that they won't be covering, insurers won't be covering for foreseeable issues like sea level rise in the future. But if you imagine a city without insurance, that forces you to do other things to, to, rather than just transfer risk, but perhaps to either accept risk or mitigate risk. And what that looks like is, is more resilient buildings, uh, more isolation, more viscous dampeners more resilient horizontal infrastructure in the case of, of the city council's infrastructure, for example. 
And what they actually look like is more plastic pipes instead of concrete pipes. More base isolation. And actually, we're seeing that happen now in Wellington. There must be 10 or a dozen new commercial developments going up, including an apartment building, where the buildings are base isolated. And previously, that would not have happened because it wasn't required. So that's happening not because of regulation, but because the market is moving in that direction. And increasingly, we're seeing tenants, employers, and other occupants of buildings demanding that buildings are more resilient and can recover quicker from an earthquake. So we think that's quite exciting from a, um, a market perspective. It's not our, our regulation that's driving that. It is a market demand. We're really happy to see um, the real estate market start to market buildings as 100% resilient. And whilst it's, it's not great for the owners of, of less strong earthquakes, uh, less strong buildings, over time, we're pleased to see resilience being designed into our infrastructure and ultimately into our communities, Jack. Really encouraging. For our traditional closing question, we like to ask, what's one accepted truth of local government that you think is incorrect? There's a misconception that local government is easy. It's just digging drains and collected rubbish. Actually, when you're so close to the customer, local government is really, really hard. We typically get beaten up by... um, all sorts of people who, who moan about what the council does. What I'd encourage is for those people who actually run for council and will come and work for us and, and see how challenging it actually is. Hugely challenging, hugely rewarding at the same time, but it's actually very, very difficult to work in this environment. We have massive expectation, limited budget like everybody else, but being really, really close to the customer makes it much more difficult and much more challenging than most people realise. So for me, that's that's a major untruth about local government that it's easy and it's just about picking up a rubbish bag or digging a hole. It actually is hugely complex and hugely challenging. And I think it's the same around the world. Largely, it's looked down on by, certainly by central government, by a lot of our customers, but actually it's a really difficult place to work. It takes a certain kind of person who has a certain level of resilience to be able to work in this environment. <laughs> Love it. Mike, this was a blast. I really appreciate your insight on all the topics covered. Thanks for sharing. Ka kite anō and kia ora. It's me again. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed it, leave a rating on Apple Podcasts and connect with me on LinkedIn. See you soon.